0: Hey, it's Miles here, and before the show starts, uh, many of you have been curious about the work that I get to be a part of at at OnSite, and so I just wanted to give you a glimpse into who we are. OnSite is, is known as a worldwide leader in the personal growth and therapeutic workshop space, We're just fortunate to work with an incredible team that creates life-changing experiences that assist individuals and families and couples into becoming more self-aware, empathetic, compassionate, and and resilient. And just overall raising our emotional intelligence so that we can become better versions of ourselves and enhance our relationships. So whether you're feeling burnout or life just seems a little out of balance or whether you're trying to overcome some adverse circumstances that you experienced along the way, we've got some really cool workshops uh, that we offer year-round that we'd love for you to learn more about. And we also help stay plugged in and get you resourced for counseling and other great resources in your area as well. If you want to know more about us, check out onsiteworkshops.com or you can find us on our socials at at workshops.
1: We had a conversation in my house about the hijab and just like an understanding of like, are you going to wear this? Like, how do we feel safe? And there are people who are saying, Hey, you know, if you wear hijab and you want to keep wearing it, like, for a little bit, why not just like go out wearing a beanie or a hat or a hood or something instead so that you don't like really stick out because it's not, it's not safe anymore. And I remember like getting into like a really emotional conversation with my mom and just saying, like, I'm so proud to be wearing this and I would die for it. I would die for being my, living my most authentic truth because if not, then I just don't think that it's worth not doing.
0: Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do.
2: Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it.
0: So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake make them all laugh Come on, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me Today on the podcast, we have Noor Tagouri, a Libyan-American storyteller and journalist. She is currently one of the most talked-about young adults in the country, having worked with CBS Radio, Newsy, CTV News, while being known as the first hijab-wearing news anchor on American television. Her two documentary passion projects, The Forest Haven Story and Sold in America, have both served as lighthouses in the culture, exposing injustices and combating the challenges facing marginalized communities. From viral stories to global speaking tours to releasing her own line of fashion, Nora is raising the bar every step of the way. Her consistency, transparency, and philanthropy have given her a platform with hundreds of thousands of loyal supporters trusting her to tell the story the right way.
2: Y'all, I am honestly so excited to share my precious friend's story with y'all today. She is such a gift and her voice, especially in our culture today, is so needed and so important. So, I'm so excited to share my friend, Noor. My sweet Nora, we are so thrilled to have you here. I'm this so is happy. what a gift! Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for letting us stay at your house again. <laughs> you treasure. What an honor. I was telling Miles when I was telling him about you. I mean, you just have. The most warm, welcoming, oldest soul. Like, I remember being like, whoa, 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 you're 22. Slow your roll. That is not how in the world you've had so much life experience. You've done so many beautiful things in the world, which we'll get into some of those because I'm just, I'm absolutely in awe of who you are and your voice in this world. And it is, you are such a light. Yeah, such a gift. There's so many. I mean, the list is so massive of the beautiful work that you've done in this world. And it started, I mean, I was like, her TED Talk was three years ago. You were what, 21, 22 years old?
1: Yeah, like,
2: I guess. That's sister. such a weird, yeah. I.
1: It's like one of those things where none of it really, you don't realize a lot of it until afterwards, But I, but I have always kind of been mindful of experiencing things and then just letting them sit. You know, Mm -hmm. like I try not to like linger on anything. Like once you put out work, especially if your intention while doing it is to like be of service to other people. So I know that like I have made it my mission to cover stories of marginalized people who haven't had the opportunity to have their voices amplified. I always say like, I used to mistakenly say, In high school, like, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. And then I quickly Mm. learned, like, I don't believe people are voiceless. I just don't think that we've ever really passed them the mic. Mm. And so I mistakenly found myself in a place where once I had gotten my dream job, and I wanted to be a, like a local television reporter and I had tried so hard and I was wearing the hijab which was like the Muslim headscarf and it had never happened mm-hmm. before in the United States and I was like, you know what? This is going to be the hardest thing I ever do but it's going to be the greatest thing I ever do. And then When I got the job, I thought that was the hardest part but it wasn't. It was actually like going out and getting stories and reporting. Mm-hmm. At the time, the videographer that I was working with was like a young black woman with dreads. And so every time we would go out, we would say like we are the best worst team because people would always heckled us or harassed us or said like that we didn't belong or um, questioned why we were there because we didn't look like your typical reporting team. And it wasn't until April 2015 where after Freddie Gray's murder, we'd gone to Baltimore to cover a story. And at this point in my reporting, like I had been really tired because mm-hmm. we had, it just it had gotten really hard. There was like hostility in the newsroom and it was just a weird experience. And we, Erica and I, who was the videographer, we had gone through a lot together just on the road whenever we were covering stories. And so we went to Baltimore to cover this. And for people who remember like the media coverage at the time, it was extremely negative. It was negative to the point that like people recognized that the the media coverage around this was incredibly negative. Mm -hmm. And we went and we covered a story. And as we were walking to our car, there was a man who had come up to us and he had like this beaming smile on his face. And he said, I want you to walk a couple of blocks down and you'll see one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And we – looked at each other kind of confused because he just kind of looked like he was just geeking out. He was so smiley. And we walked down a couple of blocks and we saw like one of the most beautiful things we'd ever seen. And it was every single person outside of their homes dancing and laughing and crying. And there was a Michael Jackson impersonator dancing on the tops of cars. And no media outlets were there covering this. But for the first time, people were coming up to us saying – can I tell you my story? Mm -hmm. Can I tell you what I'm feeling? Can I tell you what's happening? It was so chaotic and it was so beautiful. And in the midst of that, I remember Eric and I looking at each other and staring at each other. And then we just started crying. And we had gone back to our car and we sat in silence for a little bit. And I broke the silence and I just said to her, like, we were meant to be here. Like, this was the story we were meant to tell. Mm -hmm. And I ended up quitting my job shortly after that, because I had, I realized that like I had gone my entire life trying to be like other people. I wanted to look like other people before I put my headscarf on. I like had, I would dye my hair blonde and I'd put in color contacts. And I grew up in a very, very conservative, very white town. Like people, nobody looked like me. Nobody had the same like eye color, hair color. And it was something, it was like really difficult to kind of reckon with my identity. And I remember thinking to myself, why, I had tried so hard to be like so many other people. And then in this moment, I had gotten access to a story that nobody else had gotten access to because of who I was mm-hmm. and because people could see me and then trust that they could tell me their story, that I wasn't going to hurt them or I wasn't going to do wrong by them. And so I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't try to be like every other reporter and cover the stories that they were covering because I was missing out on my own potential. Like mm. and this is this is something I have a big problem with in all industries is just like when you when you hire somebody and you see what makes them unique and you see what makes them different and you see their strengths and you still try to put them into a box that looks like everybody else's and you don't play on their strengths. Yeah. And I truly believe like whatever your own insecurities are, whatever society has deemed as your weakness, whatever people have told you is going to be the thing that keeps you behind can actually be your strength, can actually be the key to what it is that's going to make you successful. And I use that term very heavily because I think that people have very personal definitions of success. And for me, it's like really living what your purpose is and living in that purpose. And I had pitched a story about this institution that had been shut down because of the medical abuse that had happened. It was it, it was an institution that housed people with intellectual disabilities, and the case that had shut it down was still open after 40 years. Wow. And I had pitched the story because I had heard that at the institution itself, which was only 20 minutes away from my station, all of the medical documents that belonged to the people who were who had lived there were scattered on the floor for the public to just i mean you could trespass and you could see people's like most intimate records and my director who was great but like didn't want to take the risk of trespassing said no to the story and then i said okay well i'm gonna quit and i'm gonna do it myself and so i took a broken camera and i took my cousin who had some free time and i taught her how to shoot and we went to the place and we did our research. We picked up, we found medical records. And from the medical records, we traced it to people who were still alive, who are mm-hmm. housed there. And we ended up telling the story that was so full of pain and trauma, like actual yeah. terrible, terrible, terrible traumas. One of the worst cases of medical abuse in the US's history. And we ended up telling the story with an angle of hope and light at the end because one of the characters that we follow, um, his name is Brian Slaughter. He is blind and slightly autistic and his mother is still Mm. alive. And she was handwriting like the book about her life, explaining what it was like to be a single black mother and having to put her son in this place. And we found them and we found the lawyers and the teachers and some of the doctors. And, and we went and we told these stories, but Brian, eventually now is like a a music teacher and was Grammy nominated and like has this incredible story. And so we were able to, in a way, give justice to the story that had never really gotten the justice that it needed. And I spent like three months, maybe four months, just like obsessing over doing the story. And I had no idea where it was going to go, what it was going to do, but I, I just knew that I wanted to put it out there. And that when I put it out there, I would have guidance towards, like, whatever it was I was going to do after that. And so when it it went out, um, I just posted it on my, like, YouTube page, Facebook, whatever. And I got approached by a director at a media outlet who had seen it and asked to interview me for a job position. It was, like, for a political reporter. And I had no interest in being a political reporter. Um, And I told him that at the interview. And he just said, I watched – your documentary on Forest Haven and I just, I want you to come in and dressed the way you dress with your own, in your own voice and tell those stories that you know you need to tell. Mm. And I, for the first time ever, had like kind of been given the reins to do whatever I wanted because of who I was. Mm. And I realized that like that was what I was supposed to be doing. And so when people say like, you, you tell like stories of marginalized communities I have to admit, like, that was never my intention. I never, I just loved telling stories and asking questions. Like, I was doing that from when I was in diapers. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started doing those stories that I realized, oh, wait, like, that's what my purpose is. It wasn't mm-hmm. just to tell stories. It was to tell these stories. That's right. And once you start down that road, everything else opened. So from that story, like I got the opportunity to tell other stories that led to other stories and Mm. so on and so forth. And it just becomes your beat almost. That's right.
0: You said something, there's a lot of amazing stuff in there. I want to back up a little bit to when you said you and your colleague went down the street to see that beautiful thing. And then you looked in the eyes of someone who wanted to tell you their story. And you said you had this moment of immediately knowing they trust me yeah what makes you trustworthy why do you think
1: Mm, that's such a great question because in the latest documentary that i've produced called sold in america it was an investigative documentary on our um on the sex trade in the u.s there was one interview that i did with a trans latina who was formerly a sex worker she's a sex work activist now and we were talking to her we this was like the third time we had spoken to her And she was like a very tough person. She was one of those people that you just like couldn't crack. Like she she would tell you stuff. She would tell you her story, but she would sit there and tell you a story about how she was almost murdered and would say it with like no emotion on her face. And we got to a point where I just stopped and I was like, How are you saying all of this this way? Like and like this is a big deal. And she looked at me and was like, when you go through what I've gone through, you're as strong as a rock. And sometimes Mm. I joke that I should have been in the military because of how strong I I am. Mm. And she said – and she started breaking down and she was like, I just want people to know, like, I'm not a piece of trash. I'm a human being and I don't deserve to be treated that way. And we hugged and it was like the most vulnerable moment. And after that interview, we hopped in a cab and my producer looked at me and said – how is it that that just happens to you after every single interview? Mm. Every single interview, you get people to say something that they've never said before. Mm. And then she said, we just need more hijabi journalists. And I laughed and Mm. I was like, it's not that there aren't journalists out there who wear the hijab. It's just that we don't get hired. And to go back to your question, why is it that people trust me? One, I think it's because like I wear my identity on my sleeve. Mm. So even when I go into an interview, like, I dress the way that I dress typically. Like, I don't – I used to when I worked in local television. I used to try to, like, wear slacks and, like, a jacket and whatever. And I just felt uncomfortable in it. But I started dressing the way that I wanted to. And I wore my hijab on my head. And there was just this understanding that – I know what it's like to be misrepresented in the media. Mm. And I ask myself a question that I that nobody ever taught me this because all of my journalism teachers were white men. And they wouldn't have been able to teach me this had they not had my own experience. But before I go into every story, I ask myself, how is the way that I am covering this going to affect the communities that we're talking about? Because I don't think that a lot of people ask that when they cover my community, because had, if they did think about that, then they would know that they had to be very careful with the way that they use their words, because an overwhelming majority of the time, the way the Muslim community is covered is extremely harmful Mm. and puts all of us in danger. Mm. And uh, people don't think that way, so
0: meaning meaning it's covered. They cover the extreme.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Like for Mm. instance, Sinclair has a terrorist alert desk, Mm. right? So Sinclair owns dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of local television stations. They have a terrorist alert desk, and any story related to Muslims goes on that terrorist alert desk, even if it's not about terrorism. So like they did a story about like Muslim women wearing burkinis and they reported it on their terror alert desk because it had to do with Muslim women. So if you're seeing a Muslim woman wearing a hijab at the beach and it's on your terror alert desk and then you see me go to the beach in a burkini, then what are you going to think? And what do you expect people to think? Like, Mm -hmm. this is something that, that's why I always say, like, even in my family, we always say this. Like, I never blame people for how they feel about Muslims Mm -hmm. because if I wasn't a Muslim person and I watched the way the media covered Muslims, I would be terrified. Mm -hmm. I would be terrified. I was telling Ruthie, we were telling her yesterday, like, we got into an elevator at the airport yesterday. Adam's laughing because it's so, it's so funny, but it's (laughs) like true. We got into an elevator and there was this woman who just looked she First of all, she walked in and my the elevator shut on my suitcase because she was trying to, like, leave so quickly. And she just – her nose was an inch away from the wall and she was just looking away from us because she was so terrified. And as soon as the doors opened, she sprinted out. And I could tell that she was oozing, like, a huge sense of just mm. uncomfort. And it's sad, but, like, I just didn't – like, I, I was like, you know what? I, don't, I can't really blame you.
0: That's a pretty empathetic position,
1: but you have to have that Hmm. because you have to. Like, I have to understand where people are coming from. And so, to go back to like the trust thing, I actually spend a lot of time talking to people before I interview them, and that's not like the most common practice. But I think it's really important to build trust with people because Mm -hmm. I don't think people owe us their stories.
0: It's fascinating to think about the duality of that dynamic. The way you described that, I trust exists in part because I wear my identity. Yet, because I wear my identity, it scares some people.
1: Oh, totally.
0: The thing that scares us often is is what sometimes we trust when we know the truth about it.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I never even thought about it that way. The first time I ever came to Nashville, I swore I would never come back. I had spoken at Vanderbilt University, and I was in college. And because I would tour while I was in college, I had to do my assignments while I was out on the road. And I had a project. I had to do a story. And I found out that there was a story here in Murfreesboro. And it was about the wanting of opening up a Muslim graveyard so that they had their own funeral home section and all of that. And there was like these massive protests against it. And it was the same group of people who had protested the mosque being built to begin with. And I remember I went to cover the story. And I didn't really – I didn't tell my professors about it or anything like that. But I remember my professor saying, like, never turn off your camera. And when I got to cover the story, and this I was in college, I got overwhelmed because there was people who were, like, yelling at me and calling me names at the courthouse to the point where, like, that ended up being a local news story, how people were treating me. And there was somebody who kept saying, like, turn off your camera. And I did for, like, 15 seconds. And then I was like, why am I listening to this person just because he scared me? And I turned it back on. And... They were saying to things like, um, I know that this isn't an actual assignment. You're going to put me on Al Jazeera and you're like a terrorist. And I had to show the woman like my homework assignment and she didn't believe me. And I was like, wow, this is wild. And I tried to like deal with it with like kindness because one of the guys who was like, I said he was mean mugging me because he really was. He kept looking at me and saying, and I was like, how are you? And he was just like, fine. And like was just being so cold and. And I remember him just saying, what is this for the MSA, which is, like, the Muslim Student Association. And and then he called it a terrorist organization. I was like, I'm not even a part of my MSA, like, only because I don't have time. And it was just, like, this whole misunderstanding. And then I'll never forget the woman ended it with, like, I'm just tired of being put on the back of the bus. I was just so confused. And she said, you terrify me. And it was the first time I had ever really, like, really experienced anything like that. And I swore I was like, I'm never coming back to this place mm. because, like, I – And I I mean, I was born in West Virginia, spent time living in Alabama and grew up in Southern Maryland. I did not grow up in a, but I had never worn hijab in any of those places. Mm. And that was why. Mm. Yeah, Because my mom put on the hijab when she was in Alabama. And my dad literally was like, are you sure you want to do that here? Like nobody here is wearing it Mm. and it's not. And this was pre 9-11. So there was like a, not much of an understanding, but it wasn't the fear Mm. that was, that exists today. It's an interesting dynamic, especially because a lot of times when I would ask people, like, do you think I can do this? They would tell me I should take off my scarf just because they thought that it it made me, like, less objective as a reporter. And I was like, I just never understood. I was like, why does my hijab – like, I'm not going in and reporting on stories saying, like, there's this protest that broke out and I'm wearing hijab, so therefore this protest is whatever. I'd never done that, and I made sure that every single time I covered a story – if anything, I was even more objective because I knew that I was just being scrutinized all the time. Mm. And it made me a better journalist in the end. Like I I wasn't careless. I made sure the way that I was reporting, I was keeping everything in mind. Mm. And I just learned how to listen a lot better.
2: Mm.
1: Not only listen, but like totally drop your preconceived notions about anything. And that's, even with like Sold in America now, like I really think that that's why it did so well. And that's why we were able to get the access that we did because I was able to go in and, like, spent two years reporting on the sex trade, which is something that I wasn't very familiar with, but also was able to completely, mm. like, open up and learn and draw parallels and be a student
0: mm. and
1: report in a way where I was able to just say, hey, I want to learn from you. Here's the mic and, and, and tell me your truth. Because I, I had known that, like, nobody had ever done that for us. Mm. Mm.
2: Wow. Where did that – I mean, there's just been this fire – From day one? Like, where do you think that came from? What is the root of that? Like, (laughs) I I just, it feels so set apart and it's been there from day one. Like, you were a child running home from school to watch Oprah with your mom as a six year old. Like, no, that's just not, (laughs) that's not the norm. You know what I think it is, honestly? I think it was my parents letting me
1: be myself. Like, I think that a lot of times I have to, say like I, I feel very, very, very blessed and grateful for that because they allowed my me to like set into my identity. Like now looking back, sometimes I see like photos of the things that I would wear. I was in middle school and I would wear like vintage gold pointy heels and pink silk skirts and ribbons in my hair. And I look back and I'm like, how did my mom let me leave the house like this? And I remember saying something. I've never said this before, but I remember saying something to my mom about it. And she was just like, why would I stop you from like expressing yourself? She was like, there's a lot worse that you could have been doing. I was just, I wanted you to be yourself and find yourself because I knew that years later you were going to look back and be like, that wasn't a great (laughs) choice, but at least – you got to do it. And at least you got to express yourself. And it wasn't somebody telling you no or telling you otherwise, because then you lose like track of who Mm. you actually are and who people are telling you to be. Mm. Like I always say, I think you're very familiar with your personal legend from like the time you were a child. And I knew my truth. And the thing that was truest to me was asking questions and telling stories and absorbing other people's stories. And I had an obsession with it. But had I had parents who – fit the stereotypical Arab parent mentality because both my parents immigrated here, which the stereotype is you go to medical school, you go to law school, you become an engineer. That's what we came to America for. Mm. And my parents were very much like, I want you to be the best thing that is truest to you. And that's how I learned how to define success when it came to career. I think that me being a journalist, which is a job that you don't get paid much for at all, But me pursuing this because it was the truest thing to me was going to make me more successful than I ever would have Mm. been as an average doctor Mm. because I was truly living in purpose. I could have access to like other opportunities, whether it was speaking or traveling or whatever it was and really live to my fullest potential. And so I think that fire was just similar to the fire that we are all born with, but I didn't have anybody really squander it. And then my energy just in general, like I've always said I have like an obsession with Avatar Last Airbender and like the elements and I've always felt like I was fire. And I've learned how to like embrace that because sometimes fire is not the best thing because you can be like short-tempered or whatever. But I've learned how to like channel it in the most positive way. And then the people who know me like just they've always used that element to describe me. Um, And it's just something that's been natural. And I think that I just thank my parents for like letting me sit into that. Yeah. Once you realize there's like everything comes from like you say the one source and there's like it's unlimited. Yes. There's enough for everybody and there's mm-hmm. more than enough for everybody, mm-hmm. then you realize like the key to all of that is being able to give and know that when you give that it's it's in a form of growth because I think that we are always taught that giving is like when you give your time or your money you're losing something. Mm-hmm. My family and I we've worked with people experiencing homelessness since I was 14 years old and just recently started a foundation literally called ICU mm-hmm. um to remind people that they're seen. I remember one time my mom and I were doing a grocery run. We were dropping off groceries at a women's shelter. We have this date routine where we would drop off the groceries and then we would go and we would have lunch together and like go shopping or see a movie or, and just like kind of embrace that like what we had that morning. And I remember we were leaving and my mom started crying in the car and was just like, Noor, I never want you to think that what we are doing here is a favor for anybody. Mm. Because I truly believe that every blessing that we have in our life, every protection that we have in our life comes from these small, consistent deeds. And I pray that we were always – in a position to give because this opportunity, like us being able to give to these women is more than the food that we're giving them. Like they're giving us more than we are giving them. And once you realize that, you'll understand what this life is about. Mm. And it always stuck with me because my parents were always big on service. And we believe that like you serve God or the one source by serving your community, by serving yourself, by serving other people and giving back. And once you realize that the only way you can truly feel your best and feel like you're living in purpose is if you're doing things for others and you realize that that's where abundance comes from. Like it comes from like feeling good head to toe in yourself and then moving outwards towards like your family, then your community and like beyond. And that's where the answers are. that's why when people like feel unfulfilled or like they're struggling, like they have all the money in the world, they'll have power, they'll have whatever, everything they thought they wanted and still feel like the void. I'm always like, but that's not what we were created for. Like we are not spiritual beings experiencing this human world to look for that. Like, of course it's great, but – the only way you're going to feel that fulfillment is if you are filling the void that we were created with to begin with. And that is tapping into that source. That is being able to be in service. That's why when people volunteer, no one volunteers and then feels bad afterwards. It's like working out. It's like you don't work out and then you feel like, I wish I didn't work out. There's everything else though that happens. Like you can regret things. You can feel crappy after things, but those are the things that don't. And sometimes I think like Because I truly believe that service is a mentality and a lifestyle. Like it doesn't have to be donating your money and time. But there are those moments where you are doing that direct form of service are some of the purest moments. And those are the ones that like you feel that ultimate overwhelming sensation of this is what it's about. And once you have those experiences, you know how to be able to navigate the rest through that mentality. And I think that mentality is just saying, like, I want to go into things, helping other people, but also like living for something bigger than yourself. And so if you're going into, say, I'm going in to cover a story and I realize this isn't just for me to be able to fill up 30 minutes of time and get people, like, get great content, but we're actually serving a community, then you're going to get more out of it than you ever thought you would. It's as simple as that. Like, it's just – That's the key, that's it.
0: Hey, it's Miles, and I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our friends at Nisolo. They are the sponsors of this week's episode, and they are a sustainable shoe and accessory brand that is committed to intentional design, ethical manufacturing, and fair pricing. Each Nisolo purchase provides a living wage and helps to combat climate change. Nisolo actually owns and operates its own sustainable factory in Peru, and they are offsetting their production's carbon emissions by protecting trees from deforestation in the nearby Peruvian Amazon. In 2018, a alone. Nisolo customers have helped save more than 54,000 trees from being uprooted through their purchases. That's like the size of 62 baseball fields. It's really unreal. We have known Nisolo for years. Ruthie actually introduced me to this brand and now I'm a loyal customer and I love their shoes as does my wife and family. We had the pleasure recently of interviewing Patrick Woodyard, Nisolo founder and CEO at their headquarters in Nashville. And I got to tell you, my respect for this brand and their mission went up exponentially after hearing more about the heart behind this effort. You can listen to our conversation with him on the season two bonus episode to learn more about Nisolo products and ethos, or you can try them out for yourself because Nisolo is offering unspoken listeners 25% off their purchase at nisolo.com when you use code unspoken at checkout. That's N-I-S-O-L-O.com and enter unspoken at checkout for 25% off your purchase of ethically made shoes and bags. it seems like you've lived such a rich life up until now and had such a good imprint from your parents. And I'm sure I've got some questions about faith too. I can't wait to talk about in a moment, but I'm just curious in hearing kind of your perspective and a little bit of a highlight reel of some of the things that you've done. I know we've also, all of us have clips that in our narrative that would be uncomfortable for others to see or watch. Has there ever been a season where I know one of uh, hearing one of the things that your superpowers is helping people anchor into their worth and, and live their true potential? Has there ever been a season for you where you were questioning your worth or?
1: Mm. So I think that that sits in with like my identity struggle more than anything. I guess if I think about like what I believed my purpose was as a storyteller, I always have people ask me or reach out to me and say like, well, what did you do in the days where like you thought it wasn't gonna happen or it wasn't for you? Did you ever feel like you were gonna give up? And I know this is such a disappointing answer, but the truth of it was like, there wasn't a single second where I thought I wasn't going to be who I am. Hmm. Like I didn't know it was gonna be this great, but there wasn't ever a single second, even when the most powerful people in the industry looked at me in the eyes and said, you are never gonna make it. I always thought to myself, no, you're wrong. And part of that, again, to go back to my parents, but I just started reflecting on this recently is because my parents always told me that I was going to be great and that that and like that I was going to be able to do whatever I wanted. And I thought to myself, well, my parents have never lied to me, not that I know of, but why would I believe anybody else? Like, I don't trust you. I don't know you. Why would I believe you over them? Mm. And so that was always very true to me. Wow. But I think that there were moments where I think the hardest was like when I was really trying to figure out how to do it and how to be myself. Like even when I, before I wore hijab, nobody in my family thought I was going to put it on. I I used to tell them like, I can't put it on if I'm going to be on TV, it's just never going to happen. And so I recently asked my mom, like, how did you feel when I put it on? And I just asked her this like last year. And she said, to be honest with you, like, I didn't really care because I thought I didn't think you were going to keep it on. She was like, I thought you were going to take it off. I believed in you and everything else. But with this, I was like, nah, that's not her. And she like, she was like, it, w- it didn't make a difference to me whether or not you put it on because I loved you for who you were. Mm. And that's it.
0: Mm.
1: And it was as simple as that. And so that struggle with identity was like super personal to me and um, trying to figure out like where I fit. I always struggled with like fitting in because I never – looked like anybody like I I always share this memory but when I walked into first grade I sat down next to the only other girl with dark brown hair and asked her if she was Muslim because I'd never seen another girl with dark brown hair at school mm. and I thought oh how, Muslims must be <clears throat> how
0: old were you
1: I was six wow Or seven mm. yeah and, I, and she, she doesn't remember this I'm sure but like that was like such a vivid memory so that was like a really big thing and then I think like the self-worth thing just now reflecting more on it especially after working on this series. So, I'm so I was so passionate about doing this project on the sex trade because of my own experiences with sexual violence and losing a sense of self-worth when it came to that mm. because it's one of those things where like it's amazing now that we're having all of these conversations about sexual violence. But I, like, opened up to my mom just last year about a lot. Like, there there was that one, the main incident that happened when I was 12 that she knew about, my, my family knew about. There are incidences that I never told them about. Mm. And I didn't open up to her about it until last year, last Thanksgiving. And I just told her everything. And she just sat in silence and just was like, I'm so sorry I wasn't there for you during all of that. Like, I wish I would have known. And I told her like, it wasn't your fault. You forget that your parents were kids having kids. Hmm. So like they're still, they were still like learning. But I was like, it wasn't your fault. But now like that I think about it, we just never really talked about, and I don't think we really had as a community, as a society, we didn't talk about this until now, but like we never talk about the fact that like when you go through something, an instance of like sexual violence, like it's never your fault. So you carry a lot of like shame and guilt and, yeah. and like, what did I do? What did mm-hmm. I do for somebody to do that to me? What did I do to deserve that? Did I look at someone a type of way? Did I say something? Did I? And so you will like carry that for a really long time. And that messed with my like sense of identity with everything else too. Because I was just trying to figure out like my worth and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time there was somebody, this was probably, like this was a super low point, but there's a guy that I was talking to. I remember him saying, like, I don't think that you should be a reporter. This is just not appropriate for a woman. And I was like, what? Where is this coming from? Like, how could you say something like that when my parents are, like, the biggest supporters of me doing what I want to do? And it was like – and for a while I was like, well, like, should I change my major? Should I do something else? Like, because I didn't understand, like, why I should compromise what was so true to me. And then I remember he said – this is when I was like, okay, this is not okay. And it was a click. But he said to me like, how do you think it would make me feel as a man he was going to be a dentist if my wife was like Oprah and I was just out here working on stupid teeth? And I was like, whoa. I like had never heard anybody say anything like that. And I had finally gotten to a place where I realized like that your insecurities – and like what you struggle with with yourself is not a reflection of me and has nothing to do with me. It was like a low point because I now looking back, I can't believe I had ever even questioned like ever leaving what was true to me and how miserable I would have been if I did that. Funny enough, he like reached out to me a couple years ago and was like, I'm so proud that you – and I was like, no, you're not. Like that's not – but it was one of those things where you kind of have to – Get to that point of like a like a like that rock bottom low point of questioning who you are to like pick yourself back up and remember who you are mm. and then recognize that like this is what's true to me and your insecurities and your flaws and your self-doubt are not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of yourself. Like I had to heal from there.
0: Mm. Thanks for sharing that. I, th- I know there's a lot of young women that look mm. up to you and- <laughs> hear what you're doing uh, and how beautiful it is but to also hear the humanness yeah of, of,
1: well i've never shared that before so mm. Hey. Mm. breaking news
0: mm. and and the other thing that i i really take from that is i as a new parent a new dad i often look to parents to get parenting advice but you just gave me some of the best i've ever had from someone who's been parented well
1: <laughs> um, yeah. thank you i mentioned my parents in every interview and adam my husband and i talk about our parents all the time because we recognize that like the only reason we do what we do and we are who we are is because of them and i also recognize that that is not common mm. that this experience with parents is not common and our parents weren't perfect by any means no. but they were kids having kids and i remember my mom i mean i i know she's listening to this But I'm sorry for sharing this publicly, but I remember she called me last year or the year before and she just said, like, did I do a good job with you? Mm -hmm. Like, was I a good parent? And I was like, what? Like, how could you even ask that? And she was like, I mean, I was just a kid when I had you and I just she was 20. She had turned 22 and she was like, I just wanted you to know that I loved you so much. And I just wanted you to know that, like, you were just so loved. Mm -hmm. And that's all I knew. Like that's all I knew how to do. Like, and I have memories of my mom, like putting me in front of a mirror and just saying, "Like, who is that beautiful girl? Who is that strong girl? Who is that confident girl?" Aww. And she would just like recite. My mom's also a guidance counselor, Aww. which explains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love her. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> Tune so in, great. Parents. Yeah. 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 And it, she, she didn't know, like, she just knew that that's what she needed to do. Mm. And her mom never did that to her. Like, I'm very, I'm very close to my grandmother, but my mom was like one, there was two girls and six boys Wow. and for 12 years, she was the only girl. Wow. So she wasn't, it was a mm. completely different life and stuff. And she was just like, I just knew that I wanted to smother you with love. And I was like, wow. as, as cliche as that sounds, that's, that's all a kid needs. Like, mm. that's it.
2: Wow. You love the world so well because you were loved so well. And like, what a beautiful thing knowing how loved you are and to be able to enter the world out of that space. Like that's such a gift to be given. I feel the same way. I mean, I know you feel the same way, Miles, like that's such a beautiful gift. One thing I was wondering about, you're in the helping profession and you're going out and you're seeing, I mean, You're talking about the documentary you did, and there's a lot of vicarious traumas that you've experienced. You've seen really dark, scary, hard, traumatic things. And you hear very painful stories of people's suffering. You also hear about the beauty and people rising and just, you know, the light and the goodness in the midst. But how do you for yourself, because we both talk a lot about self-care and the transformed people and the healed people are the ones that transform others and heal can heal others. But what are ways and things that you do for yourself mm. to really care for yourself and to love yourself well and to refill up when yeah. you've experienced such, you've seen really painful things, you've experienced really painful things. And how do you care for yourself?
1: So I didn't really learn how to properly care for myself until working on this project mm. because it did take like us to very dark dark places and I it's funny that you're asking me this because I literally wrote about this exactly yesterday on the plane while mm. I was coming here because I remember 2 days before our wedding I had spent 2 days with men who had bought sex and were arrested for buying sex and it was just a very it was one of the hardest parts of the series because I, I didn't know what to expect. And I was just, I remember be, like just shaking, like being scared to like go into this because of my own experiences. And then I got to our wedding and the day before our wedding, I was sitting, we got married on the beach in Miami and I was just sitting and like, it was just numb. Cause I had felt so much that past week and then we got married. And then a couple weeks after that, had seen like my first heroin overdose and we had spent – like we were out at night in D.C. and like I had seen like younger girls going into cars and what we saw as trafficking. And it was just like one of those things where you just couldn't shake any of it. And there was like this breaking point that I had like three months into – our marriage. And it was, it wasn't from any of the reporting. I'd been super exhausted from all of the reporting, but it was because of something a community leader had said about me on social media and assumed about me and was just very, it was really mean. It was horrible actually. But, and I had just had this like breakdown moment and I called a spiritual teacher, the one I was telling you about yesterday. Um, and I called him crying. It was the first time I ever called him And he just listened and he prayed for me for like five minutes straight. And then he invited Adam and I to retreat. It was called Refining the Core. So it was like the spiritual self-care retreat and it was 10 days. And I just, we took a pause. Each member of our like crew took a mental health break during this. And I had really learned, like we had done a lot of heart work is what they call it. And we really learned a lot. And it was like a very great way to like recenter ourselves. So we learned just essentially about like self-care not being a practice of just like doing things once in a while. Like it was a lifestyle. And so I really tried to like make habits of things that really allowed for me to care for myself. So yeah, I started doing EMDR Mm because I realized, which is a type of therapy where you like fully process your trauma I didn't get why working on this series was, like, really painful for me. I knew on, like, the surface level, but I had realized there was a lot of trauma that I hadn't processed. Yeah. And so that was really helpful and excruciating but really helpful. And then I just kind of, like, took a step back and reevaluated, like, how I was living, really. Like, the people I was spending time with, the energy that I was taking in, the foods Mm -hmm. that I was eating, like, what I was doing for my health like how I would go about telling stories or where, like, I don't know, just every little detail. And so now we're like super intentional with everything that I do. I like keep consistent habits that make me feel good. Like I know that people joke about like baths being like a form of self-care. So take a bath once in a while, but like I take a bath almost every night now yeah, because that's like something that really like I need to look, I look forward to. I need whether it's like working out, which is also is a cliche, but like really getting to mm-hmm. that place where you feel stronger. And a huge part of it was like cutting out a lot of toxic people too. So it was just like consistent things. And it's kind of an all over the place answer because I'm still all over the place with it. I don't think that I'm at a place right now where like I feel better now than I ever have in my entire life, but I'm nowhere near being done, not that you're ever done with this, but I'm not even like, I haven't even scratched the surface. Yeah. Service. So ask me maybe in a year, <laughs> maybe after onsite. <laughs> 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 yeah, <girl. laughs> me uh,
0: I'd rather hear the process than the end result anyway.
1: That's right. That's true. we always I, on the journey, yeah. totally. I actually wrote, I woke up, I do this thing where I like wake up and I write in the middle of the night, I'm gonna read you something. I'm going to read it to you. It's the middle. It's the middle of your story that tends to be the blurriest. It's the small things that add up to the big moments, the part of the journey, the little sacrifices and failures that are hard to remember down the line because you are so focused and so passionate about the mission. And it never seemed like failure then. It never seemed like sacrifices. It just seemed like you were paying your dues. You were doing what you had to do. And you would do it again a million times over if you had to. You would work the overnight shift. You would go through the supplier who screwed you. You would get fired, laid off, and quit. You would fall and get hurt and betrayed. Because those moments, those movements, those are the ones that got you here today. And sometimes other people remember them better than you. Sometimes people see the bigger picture, the vision, the potential before you. You just work. You put in. You cross the task off your to-do list. And you make moves. And isn't that what making moves even really means you literally pick up your destiny from point a and land it on point b you create you make it happen you write the narrative the script the chapter you unlock each shackle piece by piece as you find yourself you serve you win you love you grow and grow it's endless and it's beautiful and you're already there
0: come on mm, wow thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful <laughs> our slogan at onsite is trust the process
1: Oh, 100%.
0: And I know we're not the only people that use that, but it, when you after you've done the work, it means so much more. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're not really headed towards a goal, but I did want to ask, I've not done a deep dive on our demographic, but I have taken a look at our demographic, those that, those that listen to our show, but I make up based on just where people are, uh, that it's mostly Christian, in Nashville, LA, not all, so I'm certainly not boxing in our listeners, don't worry. I hope it's very diverse, but I know just based on geography, mostly Christian, so what do you think and you you spoke into this earlier when you said, and I appreciated the way you framed it. I'd never heard it framed that way of having empathy on people who have a misunderstanding towards your faith mm. because of the uh the lens in which they it's presented to to them what would you think is the biggest misunderstanding about the Muslim faith
1: mm honestly, the biggest misunderstanding is everything that you see on media. It's like right now, especially is the narrative of terrorism and that terrorism is linked to our religion when in fact it's not at all. And that terrorism is very political. I mean, most people don't even know that like the majority of terrorist attacks in the United States have actually been right-wing terrorist attacks. Yeah, But we just do this whole fear-mongering thing of people who are different than us. And it comes from a lot of things. There was an experience that I had where my absolute best, best, best friend from childhood, her mother had posted, who was my second mother, she had posted like a really horrible thing about Muslims on her Facebook page. I remember like my mom sending me the post and I just started crying. Like I didn't say anything, I just like was bawling because I felt like my my childhood was a lie because we were the only Muslims they knew, you know? And so I thought about how I could approach it and I was like I could delete her off Facebook I could call her out publicly I could ignore it or I could reach out to her mm-hmm. and in private and just tell her how that made me feel. so I did that and I messaged her and I said, hey like you know we're like the only Muslims you know and what you said was really or what you posted reposted was really hurtful and I just want to know where that came from why posted it or whatever. She sent me a message and apologized profusely and was like, I am so sorry. And this was pre-Trump. She was like, I'm just so sorry. I blame the media for making me think this way. And I forgot that you guys were Muslim too. And I'm going to delete the post. I would have never like thought this way. And mm-hmm. she addressed, she attributed it to media before there was this whole thing about media right now. And I remember thinking to myself, like even the people closest to us are susceptible to the misrepresentation of our communities, and and I was very frustrating because I was like, just ask me. Like I'd and I, I I said that to her So I was like, just if you have a question about Islam or Muslims, just ask us. Like we are the most open community when it comes to like people asking us questions because we so badly want you to learn from us yeah. and not from the television. Yeah. Shortly after that, there was an incident where my old high school, where I grew up, there was a homework assignment that was being taught in world history class and they were learning about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And this father, who was a veteran, walked into his daughter's room and she hid her homework assignment from him. And he asked what she was hiding and he found that it was a homework assignment about Muslims and went to the school and went to the vice principal and said, if you guys don't stop teaching this at the school, I'm going to shove this assignment up your ass. Mm he said that to the vice principal and he formed a coalition of parents in my community to boycott the teaching of Islam at the school in world history where you learn about religion and there's this whole movement about it and it was just so frustrating because I was like this is a part of the problem and I wrote a letter like I wrote a public letter to this guy and uh, published it like with Huffington Post and it was you're the reason why I was an undercover Muslim at school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't I tell anybody it, I was well. I was Muslim. And it wasn't like the kids who would bully and pick, like say stuff about my mom wearing a scarf or that we looked different or whatever it was. It was because the parents were teaching kids a certain way. Yeah. I mean, there was a video that came out recently about like a mom was videotaping her child posting like hate posters on a mosque and was mm-hmm. saying how proud she was. Mm-hmm. And the little kid who was like no older than eight years old Mm -hmm. was like, yeah, Muslims are like rapists and they're this and that. And I was like baffled that a mother would be proud to teach her son this way. And I was like, what, this is, this is the root of the problem. Like this is where it's coming from. You're taking in like what you're seeing on media Mm -hmm. and then you're instilling hate in the people. And I, and I remember in the letter that I wrote to the dad, I was like, I hope your daughter dates a Muslim. I hope she befriends a Muslim in college. Like I hope, that she actually gets to experience it so so that she can learn from our community and not from the hate that you hold on to. And it's something that's like an ongoing conversation. And the empathy that I have comes from the fact that I recognize that like a lot of the people that hold animosity in their hearts like are kind, loving people. Like they're Mm -hmm. not bad people. They're not always bad people.
0: Just not educated on...
1: Just not educated. Like my husband's mother's side of the family is Italian, Irish, Catholic. And they did not know a Muslim before his father came into the picture. And so we have conversations about how, like, had you guys not known and not ever met a Muslim, you would share the same opinions as a lot of other people. Like, when Adam and I got married, even though Adam's Muslim and his dad's Muslim, like, his grandmother's family still reached out to her worried about him marrying a Muslim. And she literally told me recently, like now, every time they see you on TV or social media, they call up and they're like, oh my gosh, we saw Noor, we saw Noor. And I was telling her and I was like, well, don't you see now that they know somebody who's Muslim and stuff, their preconceived notions, like they fall. It's because they meet a real live person and they get it.
0: That was my experience. And that's what I want to, and I want to ask this too. I had a preconceived notion. Um, Thankfully, my parents gave me a little bit more of a world vision, so I didn't fully take the bait that all Muslims are terrorists, they're all bad. But I certainly can see how you can get there by watching the media and news. I'm a Christian, but I'm a well-traveled one. Um, So I've been in some of the most beautiful mosques in the world, from Erbil to Istanbul to Abu Dhabi.
1: That's the pretty one. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Take your breath away. Yeah, it's magic.
0: And until I spent time with, let's say, the Kurds in northern Iraq and got treated more hospitable than anywhere I've ever been on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the South and was told that this is the, the place of hospitality. And and we're good at it at some level, I'll say that. But I've never been treated that way, mm-hmm. taken into people's homes and fed. And I just I get emotional thinking about the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that I learned something about the people through an experience, not through you know, traditional education. That's why I'm such a believer in curating experiences for people to heal. It's what we do at onsite. it's taking therapy and make it come alive. So a lot of people have heard just heard what it's not. And I'd love for them to hear what it is. Cause I yeah. if you were to ask me it's like what's Christianity? It gets very confusing too. Because there's yeah. a lot of good versions and mm-hmm. bad versions and everything mm-hmm. in between and a million different branches. Mm. And I think of you know people ask me that when I'm especially out in the world and I say love and And grace and kindness, Mm. and I have seen more with my Jewish brothers and sisters and my Muslim brothers and sisters. I've seen way more intersections than I've seen divide.
1: That's the whole thing. Ah, that's such. That's so the point. It's funny you bring up hospitality because today, uh, my brother shared like the World Giving Index, and it was like the number one country where people are willing to help a stranger, and it was. Libya, and that's where my parents immigrated from. Mm. It was like 83% would be willing to help a stranger. And like, that's just what we, that's in our blood. Yeah. Like, that's what you do. Mm. Um, uh, To talk about like, what is Islam? Islam is actually one of the three main monotheistic religions that actually believes in Judaism and, and Christianity. So like, if people out here are listening and they're Christians, it is actually like a commandment for you to like love Jesus and his message like that is a part of our religion like i've had people say to me that like that we hate Jesus. And I'm like, I am not allowed. Like, why would I ever do that? We believe in him and we believe in his message and in his story and what he has said. And like, that is literally rooted in our religion. But Islam itself like means submission and service. So the entire religion is based in service and like service to yourself, your community and to God. And everything is rooted in intention. So you are held accountable for everything on your intention. And it's really beautiful because we believe that even say I had the intention to do good. Like say I had the intention to to give money to somebody who was asking for money on a street, right? And I didn't have the money or I just decided not to. I would be rewarded for simply having the intention to do so. Because Mm -hmm. that's how powerful intention is. Mm -hmm. But because God is the most merciful, if I had the intention to do something bad and I didn't do the bad thing, then I get rewarded for not doing the thing I had a bad intention for.
0: Mm.
1: What
2: does rewarded
1: mean? It's the same way you have like good deeds and bad deeds. Mm. So we believe that you have a book of good deeds and a, a book of bad deeds, mm. and you are judged based on that on a scale.
0: I see what's in your heart.
1: So that's what it's always been about. It's always been about service. It's always been about doing good to others, and everything is rooted in how you treat other people. Mm. And that's why when like whenever people talk about that, it's always so confusing to me because – islamically a couple of things one there's no compulsion in islam so you cannot if you're an actual practicing muslim you can never force anybody to do anything so when people say like for instance that father who didn't want islam taught in school claimed that like they the kids were being forced to become muslim by writing down the statement that makes a person muslim and the Mm. statement that makes a person muslim is simply saying there is no god but one Mm. and so one thing that has to be clear is like you can never force somebody to be muslim like everything Everything comes from what you believe in your heart and how you feel. So say somebody was forced to wear a hijab. If they in their heart did not want to wear it, it doesn't even count.
0: What does the hijab represent?
1: So the hijab is a – there's a hijab for men and women. And people forget that. So on the outside, it's just a symbol of modesty and like dressing modest. But it's a very personal thing because it has to be – it's something that you choose to put on, choose to wear. But it's something that is a – Constant reminder of living for something bigger than yourself and your connection to God. Wow. So That's a- it's one of those things where like if I walk into a room, I'm demanding that you hear what I have to say and what I'm doing before anything else. And it's just a reminder. And for me, it's just like I get to go outside every day and when I walk into a room and almost every room I ever walk into, I'm the only person with one on my head. I know that what I'm doing, what I have to say is bigger than just me. It's mm. so a reminder to live in purpose.
0: Wow. Wow. I know you. You may have just answered this question, but I wanted to ask it earlier because it's been such a part of your story. And I was just going to ask. I hope it's an appropriate question to ask. And if it's if it's not in any way, you can let me know, and I'll certainly respect that. But if if yours had words or a message based on where you've taken it, what would it say?
1: My hijab, hmm. mine would just say "At your service." Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, it's that. a thing that I've thought about. Wow. And that's really what it's what it is. There's a reason like I feel so strongly about it, and it's it's really tough because right now, there's so many Muslim women who have decided to take it off mm. because it's n- no longer very safe to yeah. be wearing it. Yeah, I don't blame anyone for ever taking it off. Yeah. But I remember when there was an incident in North Carolina, and um three Muslims were killed execution style, and they were people that I knew and it was because they were Muslim, we had a conversation in my house about the hijab. And just like an understanding of like, are you going to wear this? Like, how do we feel safe? And there were people who were saying, hey, you know, if you wear hijab and you want to keep wearing it, like for a little bit, why not just like go out wearing a beanie or a hat or a hood or something instead so that you don't like really stick out because it's not, it's not safe anymore. And I remember like getting into like a really emotional conversation with my mom and just saying like, I'm so proud to be wearing this and I would die for it. I would die for being my, living my most authentic truth. Because if not, then I just don't think that it's worth not doing. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful at your service. Yeah. How beautiful. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's a little secret. What an honor. For everyone who's listening. <laughs> it is so great. But, but one thing I want to tell people, just like, if you ever have a question, just ask your like Muslim neighbor <laughs> or like any, you can, there are so many people online, on social media, like reach out to me, ask me the question and stuff. Just make sure you're getting, and this is for anything. This is for every experience that is not your own. Ask the person living it mm. because I promise you that what you're getting from me is going to be a million times more truthful than what Ann Coulter is going to tell you about us mm. because yeah. she has never spent a day in our shoes.
0: Well, and I would back that up as a, a white Christian that grew up in, in the South. I have learned, even though it's clumsy for me sometimes, and I have the fear of asking the question, because I don't know how to ask it or I might use the wrong words or it might come across as offensive is exactly what you're doing. You're shaking your head and no, it's, you, you want to be asked. It's a respectful yeah. thing it to do. It is
1: never, there's no stupid question. Like, ta- like I've had people ask me if I take a shower with it on and I will still answer you and say, no, I do not take a shower with it on. Like I don't wear it at home. You wear it in front of men who are not your family. Like, and I can see why people wouldn't know. Like I, yeah. wh- how, why would you know, right? So ask, ask. We love being asked questions because it reminds us that like you care to get the answer from the source you know
0: but you're hearing it you're you're also hearing it from someone who's saying i understand why the topic may scare you
1: oh totally ask questions 100
0: it's a a full-on invitation this is
1: how i've become friends with people and this is how i've become close to people i've learned to like listen and be curious and ask those questions because i know i wish people would have done it For me, you know, and then to me, it's just like if you ever want to be an ally of anybody who's marginalized, then ask them and learn from them and listen and just know because you listening right now and knowing this, like I've given you a piece of myself and you have an aspect of my story that you are now armed with and that whenever you go into a conversation and somebody says something like, negative about Muslims or our community, which is very, very often, you can stop them and say, but wait. Mm -hmm. And let me remind you that that does not mean that I am one of the good ones or I'm one of like, you know, but I'm special. That I am actually very similar to the 3.3 other million Muslim Americans that live in this country that have been here since the beginning, that have actually built up this country because an overwhelming amount of the slaves who came to America were Muslim. Yeah. And that we have always been here and that we are part of this community and that we have always been of service to this, this community. Mm. We are your doctors and lawyers and engineers and journalists and designers and favorite musicians. Like mm. we are here and and I hate the feeling of like, oh, I think a lot of times people in our community struggle with this of like, I don't want to have to feel like I have to be the perfect Perfect person and perfect citizen and perfect model Muslim, so that people don't feel like we should be banned.
0: Based on uh, what you know, which is a lot for 25 years, I'm so impressed. I'm so (laughs) glad I'm part of the conversation. Based on what you know now, if you were able to go back to that six year old Mm. that walked up to that young girl with dark hair and said, Are you Muslim? And I was kind of looking for you know, where do I belong? What would you tell her?
1: So one thing that I always say now is I always try to be the person I wish I would have had when I was 12. And I think that was like the hardest time. And I have a 13-year-old sister. So that's I'm like very close to her for that reason because I want to make sure that she knows that like I'm here and that there are people here that she can relate to. And it's funny that you asked that because I kind of daydream about that a lot. Like I always fall, there are certain memories that I have from growing up. And sometimes when I think about the memories, I see myself as like my older self going and talking to that person, mm-hmm. which is why when you were reading to me yesterday, it was very special because you had a similar experience of doing that. Mm-hmm. And I'll like go up to her and I'll like hold her like by her shoulders and be like, you are so great. And everybody around you right now that's making you feel uncomfortable is just as insecure as you are. And Mm -hmm. if not more insecure and is going through their own Mm -hmm. shit Mm -hmm. and you don't know what's going on in their home life or what they're struggling with on the inside. Um, And so however they're making you feel, just forgive them for it. Like just Mm -hmm. let them, like just know that it's not about you, it's about them.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And I think if I would have realized that then things would be a lot different because i i recognized that like i was very lucky that i had a mother who like gave me affirmations and encouraged me and built me up but even after all of that it wasn't enough it's not that she didn't she could have given me more there's nothing more she could have given me but to me it just wasn't enough because my surroundings were so strong mm-hmm. you know like my experience was so strong and i felt so alone and so i would just tell her that like hey this isn't about you and you're going to be great. And, be, and everything that you hate about yourself right now is going to be what makes you so great. Mm. And I try to tell my little sister that now, like she'll, she'll tell me about things that are happening in school or the things that she's going through. And I will always just be so casual and be like, oh, that's just so silly because you know that like, this doesn't matter. And she recognizes it. And it's like, I'm constantly in awe of her because she's like she's always been like this and now she's 13 years old and she only listens to like the Beatles and Red Hot Chili Peppers and wears ripped jeans with Chuck Taylors and has like wild curly hair and she's so incredible and she just doesn't give a shit
0: hmm. and I'm
1: just like you're the kid I wish I was hmm. and so you see what that does to a person and like you see how that can heal like that That's like preventative healing almost, Mm. you know, because you're, you're setting that person up for like a stronger core so that they can be, Mm. be better at being of service to other people and like helping other people Mm. because she ends up being the friend that everybody who, and 13 year olds today go through a lot of shit. Like they're, they're, it's not easy. Like she is, sometimes she'll tell me things. I'm like, I can't believe that's happening in your class, but, but she's like the person people will come to for her to listen. Because she's there because she knows how to be there. And that, I think, comes a lot from, like, recognizing, like, what's worth being upset over. And a huge part of that, like you said, is travel. Like, we always talk about that. Like, we've talked about that obsessively recently, Adam and I. Mm. Because once you travel and every time you travel, you realize, like, what's worth being upset over like when you spend time in a different town or a different country or just away from your phone for a week, even if it's in your hometown, you just mm. put it away. You're just like, wait a minute, that thing that I was holding in my hand, that wasn't the world this is. And like, that wasn't worth being upset over. And then everything else just seems so trivial. Like people saying nasty things to you online just seems trivial. Mm. Um, Like tweets against your entire community just feels so trivial. Like as harmful as it is, I mean, the Muslim ban affected our family. A lot, of course, because my family, the country my family is from is on that list. But we realized like, oh my gosh, there's just so – you figure it out and you realize like what's worth living for and how to go about it and to be able to see the silver lining Mm and everything. Like, and you're – I mean, Ruthie, a very great definition of using every single aspect of pain in your own experience to be like of healing and of service to other people. And had I not gone through everything, like – had I not gone through every single instance of sexual violence I had and the pain that I had gone through sold in America would have never happened. And that was so life changing. Like, and I remember there was one message I got and I told my entire team, if this was the only message that I got during this, which it wasn't, but if this was, it would have been enough. And it would have been worth it. And the message was just like this woman who's a recovering meth addict who had reached out and said, I did not realize I had been trafficked until I listened to your podcast mm. and I now use this as therapy to wow. healing. And I was yes. like, if this was it, then I'm, like, I'm done, yeah. I'm good. That's right. But it wasn't just her. It was yeah. tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. reaching out with similar stories and similar experiences. And so whatever pain you've ever gone through, every single bit of it, you didn't deserve you didn't like it nobody deserves to go through pain like that but every single bit of it is going to be what makes you great and like what makes you a healer and what makes you serve in the best way possible and i wouldn't take away a single experience that i've ever had and i and i that's the thing we all go through so much pain Mm -hmm. and like a lot of us don't end up getting the opportunity to heal properly but if you're listening to this, then know that this is an opportunity for you to like sit and recognize whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is that you've gone through is going to be a part of your armor and strength.
0: Yeah. Thanks for turning your yes. pain into purpose. Yes.
1: Thank you. That's actually part of my talk. Yeah. Hmm. I wow. can't wait to hear it. Thank, Thank you.
0: you. I could just continue to <laughs> listen and learn. We do need to kind of land the plane. I wondered... And again, this is a clumsy question, so you can redirect it or respectfully decline, but well, I'll just ask the question and then I'll tell you how I'd love to close if I've never done this before, just had the idea. Is it appropriate for in the Muslim faith to pray with people who aren't in the Muslim faith?
1: (laughs) Oh man, a hundred percent.
0: And if so, would you close us by sharing a, a prayer?
1: Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. That is so lovely because, wow, what a wild question.
0: Would you be open to closing us?
1: I would love that. I mean, we're sitting at microphones, so technically, if it was like a regular prayer, um, we would be doing like motions and stuff. But what I can do, what I really would love to do, is to read a prayer. So there are like prayers that we read every – and so the prayers – are written in Arabic. So the truth, like the biggest un- way of understanding them is in Arabic. But there's one prayer that I, funny enough, just read right now when I prayed before I did the interview today. Um, it wasn't about the interview itself, um, but it was about something, a decision that I have to make, like a really big decision. So I pray this about like the biggest decisions and the smallest decisions. So I'll read this one. So, FYI for everybody listening, Allah is the Arabic word for God. It is not a different God than the one that you worship. It is the same one. It is just the Arabic word for it. So even Christians who are Arab refer to God as Allah. Something that people don't really know. Okay. Oh Allah, I seek the counsel of your knowledge and I seek the help of your omnipotence and I beseech you and for your magnificent grace. Surely you are capable and I am not you know, and I know not. You are the knower of the unseen, and O oh Allah, if you know that this matter, and you say whatever it is that you want, you're praying about, is good for me and my religion, in my life, in my welfare, and in the life to come, then ordain it for me, make it easy for me, and then bless me in it. And if you know that this matter is bad for me in my religion, in my life, for my welfare, and in the life to come, then distance it from me and distance me from it, and ordain for me what is good, wherever it may be, and help me be content with it. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the reason I wanted to share that is because that is a prayer that I always read for everything and anything. And the intention of it isn't that like, sometimes you can have a dream afterwards or a feeling or gut feeling or whatever it is. But the intention is that once you seek guidance from the one source, I love saying that now. Once you seek guidance and whatever it is that your heart is is asking for, that you know that you are good and that you are taken care of. Mm. So, well s- however, whatever like unfolds, mm. so say you pray you s- pray this prayer or you seek guidance towards any anything and every like whatever it is. However that unfolds, you can never say. Well, what if? Because you sought guidance for it. And so you recognize that whatever happened is exactly what was best for you because you sought that guidance. And you have to trust that whatever happens is exactly what was meant for That's you. That's
0: right. Yeah. Thank, I love that. thank you for sharing oh, that. And the main That's thing I want, reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to just. We just, I'm a Christian. I could sit here and I, if we had time, I could lead us a prayer and pray to Jesus and, and we can all sit around the table. We can pray together. Whether you have a belief, whether you don't have a belief, there's a mutual respect and I think there's a connectivity that we can all learn from one another when we circle up oh, with, yeah. with open arms. So thanks for being willing to Thank model that. Thank you. Make up make, love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me.
2: Thank y'all so much for being with us today. We know your time is valuable, so it truly means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. And thank you for being willing and open to walk right into the tension of saying the unsaid. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, And this song is called Alcatraz from their EP, Hallucinate. I cannot speak highly enough about these musicians and friends. Check out their beautiful music on Spotify and online. And a huge thank you to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio who edit and mix the show.
0: If you want to learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and more information about the guest. And feel free to follow us on Instagram as well at The Unspoken Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to you. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We can't wait to share with you all of the upcoming conversations with some really special people. And we hope these fill you with the hope that we might all find connection, healing, courage, and the strength to leave no important words unspoken.